Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Welcome back to Not Another Mummy podcast with me, Alison Perry. It's Carers Week, the annual awareness campaign to celebrate and recognise the vital contribution made by the UK's 6.5 million carers. So what better time to speak to Penny Windsor? Penny is carer to her disabled 10-year-old son, Arthur, but this isn't her first experience as a carer. When she was 11, her mum started developing mental health problems, and by the time she was 13, Penny and her brothers were her carers. Penny's mum died from suicide when Penny was 22. She talks about this and how it shaped her own experience of motherhood and caring for her son in her debut non-fiction book, Tender. She also talks to other carers in the book and she explores the challenges of caring and asks why it's so hard to talk about it. It's a really valuable insight into what it's like to be a carer and I'm so grateful to Penny that she was able to spare some of her precious time to chat to me on this episode. Massive warm welcome to Penny. Hello. Hello, how are you? I'm good, how are you? Yeah, pretty good, thank you. It's lovely to be here, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's so lovely to have you, but you know, when you say you're good, are you good in the context of we're still in lockdown? I'm good in the context of, yeah, <laughs> it's the first week of June, we are still locked down. I still have one child downstairs playing Minecraft as we record this, um, and one who is actually at school, um, and no childcare, as we just discussed before, we, before I yes. jumped on the call. <laughs> we were just chatting, weren't we? So, um, so you've got two kids, Arthur's 10, Agnes is 8, is she? she That's eight? right, yes, yeah. Um, and Arthur has been diagnosed with autism. Um, tell me a bit about uh, your day-to-day life as a carer, but also how it affects Arthur's day-to-day life as well as a 10-year-old. Sure. Well, obviously, um, at the moment, things are a little bit different. Um, but Arthur um, is is 10, as you said, and he's autistic, and he also has learning difficulties, um, and he goes to a special school. So he's actually currently still in school at the moment. Um but yeah, so our day-to-day life, well, I'm also a single parent, so our day-to-day life is, is kind of interesting and a little bit complicated, um, and I have a freelance career, so there's <laughs> a lot of different things going on in this household. <laughs> um, so um, Arthur is, let me describe Arthur, that might help, um, he is, um, he's 
he does speak, but he's not what you would call a fluent speaker. Um, he can use some verbal language, um, but he can only use concrete language. So he can't really have um, conversations particularly. He's not very good at the back and forth. He can request things and he can show me things, but he can't speak about anything abstract. So he's things like feelings, um, things in the past or things, things in the future are very difficult for him to, to talk about. Um, and, um, gosh, how do I describe him? He is a bit of a whirlwind. He's, I'd say it, we get the extremes of every emotion. He's incredibly joyful and playful and fun, but also, um, he gets very anxious and very upset and quite explosive as well. So this sort of, he's a, he's one of those kids that's sort of never really quite in the middle. Um, there's not much calm in our house. It's always kind of excitement and joy um, and tears and upset. <laughs> so, um, yeah, it's it's never boring. And, yeah, he was diagnosed when he was um, was three. Before that, you realised, you realised, didn't you? Tell me, tell me about um, you realising that he was struggling with certain things when he was little. Yeah, I mean, I'd say in his first year of life, he hit all of his milestones completely on target. Um, and so there were, I had no concerns at all in his first year. Um, and then in the second year, things started to change. I um, was then pregnant with his sister and I guess it was around 18 months. I realized that he was starting to diverge from his peers a little bit. Um, you know, I would look around and realize suddenly that, that his peers were really jumping in leaps and bounds and, and he, he didn't actually change very much at all between the ages of 18 months and two which which if you say that to most parents they're kind of astounded because usually there's there's so much change mm. um I look back now and I think there were some changes but actually there was also a lot of regression at that point and I didn't really quite recognize the regression because it wasn't um it was all a little bit foggy really um I remember talking to the health visitor and, and she would say oh does he do x y z and I'd think and I and I'd think back and I think oh yeah he does do that and then I would think, oh, hang on, he hasn't, he hasn't done that for a while, does he? And then realising he doesn't do it anymore. So he might have been doing something at 18 months and then by the time he was 22 months, he wasn't doing it anymore. And this is really common with autism, but it was so subtle in some ways that it was hard to tell. And between about 18 months and two, it became really clear that he was having some quite serious meltdowns. And I look, could look back at them a kind of a year or so later when I realised that he was autistic, that um, they were quite serious sensory meltdowns and he has really intense sensory needs that um, that were really difficult to meet when he was little. Um, but it's tricky because, you know, toddlers, toddler behaviour is not that different to autistic behavior you know autistic yeah. behaviors are, are actually normal human behaviors they're just um often you know a bit more extreme um, and also with him being your first as well yeah it must have been really hard to know how much of it was kind of over worrying overthinking kind of first time mum reading into things and you know seeing issues that weren't there well the thing is I wasn't actually that worried and that's the thing that seems a bit I think maybe some people find a bit strange but I remember my mum talking about how my two I've got two older brothers and both of them talked quite late I think they were both three when they started talking and um, the reason it came up was because everyone was really astounded when I started talking at one and a half and my daughter was the same she started talking at one and a half and by the time she was two she was fluent and that was the same for me um, and um, 
And so I remember them, my family joking when I was a kid about how I just stood up in my cot one day and started speaking to them. And, um, and so I'd kind of always known this story about my brothers. And so when my, when my son wasn't speaking it too, I was not worried about there being no verbal speech at all. Like I just didn't, it just didn't worry me. I was starting to worry about some other things, but I wasn't worried about that. Um, but also I think the thing that was quite difficult is, you know, everybody else likes to point out um, the differences quite a lot. And it became difficult to spend time with other people. Um, not, you know, a few close friends, it was totally fine, but other people would point out his differences to me. And watching in him... In what kind of way? In a, in a sort of just, just conversational way? Yeah, or... just in, you know, like, for instance, he started to become aggressive and started hitting. Um, right. uh, when, you know, and it, would, and it, wasn't, it wasn't in a malicious way. It was someone would get too close to him, so he would swipe at them because he didn't right. want them near, in like, in his face. You know, I think it was like a sensory thing. Um and then, you know, people would tell us, oh, well, our child's never seen hitting before, so they don't know what that is. Oh. Sort of implying that my son had copied it from somewhere. Oh, my goodness. You know. Um, the other parents are the worst. I know. <laughs> or our child has never been to nursery, so they haven't learned that kind of behaviour, which actually my son had never been to nursery either because we always had to use a, a babysitter because of our weird freelance hours. Um so yeah so so weird little comments like that that meant that I just I actually ended up not wanting to spend time with anyone else because when we were on our own in our little bubble it didn't really matter that he was a bit different like it really didn't matter because like I said he was a very joyful kid he was also very upset a lot of the time he was you know he's been like this since almost since he was born either very happy or very upset and um and when we were on our own and we were I wasn't comparing him to anyone else it was fine um and I think it was spending time with other people that that made it much more challenging. Um, and, and actually to this day, that is still kind of the case. You know, I think, I think very carefully about where I take him and where we spend time, not because it upsets me anymore, because, um, but because I can't meet his needs properly if I'm, um, if I'm distracted, busy talking to anyone else or, um, trying to, um, meet the needs of a whole group of people um yeah. for instance the other day we went to now that we're finally allowed to go outside with some other people we went to a, a forest very close to our house and um I just had to kind of follow my son off and leave the people that were with because I can't really contain him in the same way I can't just say no no we're going to be here for 15 minutes and that's that yeah um, because everyone else wants to be I, I can't I kind of can't make him do things if you know what I mean yeah um, in that respect it sounds a bit similar to being the parent of a toddler because yes in, you, you kind of have to do that with toddlers don't you you just you do you follow do. their lead and you have, have to follow, accept yes. that, you have to accept that you're not going to have the same experience as other people yeah, on that day out I think I think it is quite similar and that's that's largely to do with his development really um not that he is like a toddler in any way um I think that's the thing that's kind of hard in a, in some ways for other people to understand about um, a developmental disorder. It doesn't mean that, um, like for instance, I would never say that he had a, a developmental age of any kind because um, like with all people with um, with processing differences, um, he, it's, he has a spiky profile. So he might be at a level with 10-year-old, another 10-year-old in some aspects and at a level with a two-year-old in another aspect. You know, it's very spiky and all over the place. Yeah. And as humans, we are all like that. It's just a, a bit more pronounced um, with uh, neurodiverse people. But, um, but yeah, so I think um, in the beginning, I think spending time with other, other people was really tricky. But then um, 
the diagnosis didn't come as a shock because actually by the time it came when he was between three and three and a half we had really done a lot of research and we had we knew that he was autistic at that point so when the diagnosis did come we were like great fantastic what are you going to give us what help do we get and um nothing nothing we didn't get anything wow. really so um that was very disappointing obviously um and is that because of the area that you live in or is that just standards well it is the area we live in but i would say it's pretty standard across the board in the uk for a developmental disorder how, how have you balanced off your caring of Arthur and Agnes? Because the care that you provide for each of them must look quite different. It does. And actually, I think for me, becoming a parent of two was 10 times harder than being a parent of one. I mean, literally 10 times harder. I remember thinking when after she was born, that was when it became really apparent that there was something very different about Arthur because he just was so stressed with her arrival. I mean, so stressed he was pulling his hair out. He was so stressed because he couldn't cope with the noise. I couldn't have the two of them in the car together. Luckily we were living right in town so we, we could walk everywhere and it was fine. I had her in a sling and him in a push chair. Um, he couldn't at that point even kind of walk anywhere holding my hands because he would just sort of fall on the ground and not want to walk anywhere. Um, he was not very good in non-contained spaces. So, uh, walking down the street was really difficult but he would be fine to run around once we're in a playground that was fenced in for instance um so so it was really difficult meeting their needs and I remember I think four weeks after she was born I think I spent my first day and evening alone with them um my ex-husband is freelance as well and he'd been around quite a lot and then also we had um a a babysitter that was coming in the days that he was working in those early days just to help me out a bit because I have no family in this country so yeah about four weeks in I did my first day and evening and I had to um I was trying to put Arthur to bed with Agnes in the sling but anytime she made the tiniest peep he would scratch her scratch her head and try and attack her so I ended up putting her in the front room in one of those swings those electric swings and I put her in that and um, then went and settled him, tried to settle him to go to sleep. And I had to leave her there for 20 minutes while she cried because I knew that if I didn't stay with him to help him fall asleep, he was never going to fall asleep and I was never going to get out of this cycle. And um, so I stayed with him until he fell asleep and then I went and got her. And I remember just thinking at that point, this is not the way it's supposed to be. Like I'm supposed to be able to look after my newborn. Like my, my toddler's needs shouldn't be higher than my newborn's. I should be able to do this. And I remember thinking it's just impossible. This is impossible. Um, and that was when I really knew that there was, there was a problem. And not to say that that isn't going to occasionally happen with a typical toddler. I'm sure it will occasionally happen. But, um, but this was like every day was like this. Um, you know, luckily for me, Agnes ended up being quite easy to settle. So I got into a rhythm of from about six weeks of settling her to sleep early and then and then I would have time for Arthur and putting him to bed and things um I just you know to keep it in perspective he's 10 years old and I still lie with him to go to sleep <laughs> so um this is something that has been ongoing um so Agnes actually her whole life has um pretty much been put to bed on her own and left and um I have to be with Arthur um it's actually fine now I don't it doesn't bother me at all now I listen to an audiobook when I lie down with him so it's not a big deal anymore but I know in those early years I found it very very overwhelming what are things like now in terms of you know you balancing off 
the time that you spend with them. I mean, you're saying that Arthur is, you know, he's still going to school and Agnes is at home. Um, are you managing to kind of find that balance there with them being a 10-year-old and an 8-year-old? Yeah, I mean, it's funny. I think some things have gotten much easier and some things have gotten harder. And I think that's parenthood in general, though, really. <laughs> you know, like, as, as our kids age, you know, things change and, yeah, some things come easier and some come harder. I think... Um, sort of outside of this unusual situation that we're in at the moment of lockdown um because my children are at two different schools it's been interesting actually I, I've, I've sort of managed to find a bit more time for each of them because they're at different schools now so usually my son would get transport to school and so he would leave 45 minutes earlier than my daughter and so my daughter and I would get that little bit of time in the morning before I walked her to school which is really really nice and then the same in the afternoon um you know, I would pick her up first and then we would get home and then Arthur would arrive home half an hour later on the school bus. So um, we were in our normal life, we're topping and tailing a little bit um, of time, just us, which is really, really nice. And then also the, the other great thing that's been great about having two separate schools, which I sort of had, hadn't anticipated until it happened, was that we have separate inset days. And actually that means that every year then I get four to six days each, just with each of them, because they're mostly on completely separate days and so I sort of made a commitment and this is you know one of the beauties of working freelance that I always take the inset days off and um, spend time with whoever's off that day and that's been really lovely and I think particularly since my daughter started school because um, before she started schools Fridays were always for her and me um, and then when she started school, and I was, I know everybody's usually really sad for the same reason. Um, when your youngest child starts school and you realise actually, oh, you don't get that alone time with them anymore. And now it's just all the kids all together. Um, I think for us, there was this extra layer of, you know, the things, the things that Arthur can do is quite limited and the things that he enjoys is limited. And so we were really using that time together to do things that he couldn't do. And so I've had to, since she started school, I had to make a big effort to do the things that she wants to do as well. And that's things like, you know, go to a museum or go to the cinema. Um, every holidays now, I take a day where he goes to his holiday club at his school and I take the day off and I take Agnes to the cinema. Oh, we can't wait to do that again. It's going to be fabulous. That's so nice. That's so nice. <laughs> but, so, but, I, but we've had to make it like a huge, like a, a conscious effort to do those things. And it's interesting when I speak to friends of mine who don't have a disabled child, um, we, Agnes and I, and Arthur and I, each spend more time alone without the sibling than any other family yeah. that we know, and that's been. A, you're making um, a real effort to do it. Yeah, yeah. And how is how is Agnes with all of this? I mean, I guess she doesn't know any different, but. Well, I think it depends on what it is and what and what her mood is. You know, sometimes you know, like a lot of kids, sometimes she will get a bit foot stampy about things. But you know, that's I think anyone that's in a family group and um and everyone's needs are different um uh, whether that's because you know there's babies or because there's you know teenagers or whatever it is um so it's not that she's always completely easy going about it but obviously she is really used to it and we talk a lot about it we talk a lot about it I don't like to be um we're not shy about talking about difficulties in this house. That's so and, good that's so good because I, I can imagine that a lot of people would be and it might not be it might be this kind of unspoken thing that, that is happening in the family, but... Yeah, no, we don't like to do unspoken things in this house, definitely. And whether that's, you know, to do with disability um, or to do with, um, I mean, even, you know, my mother died by suicide. She knows her grandmother killed herself. 
she knows about that. She doesn't know all the details, but she understands about that. So she under, she knows about mental illness. We've talked about that before. Their dad is Indian, you know, so they're not white. Um, we talk a lot about race. We talk a lot about the fact that I'm white, but I'm from a country um, where the native people are black and why that is. So we talk a lot about colonialism as well. <laughs> um, yes. You know, I think, I think there's a lot of reasons why we need to have open conversations in our house. But also I think, um, for instance, you know, Agnes, you know, she will sometimes sort of be like, it's not fair. Why? Why do we have to do it this way? Like, for instance, you know, this morning we were driving Arthur to school because we don't have transport at the moment and um, he was stressed. And so I put his favourite song on loop um, and he just wants to listen to the same song over and over again. And it's been the same song for, I don't know, maybe about six months now. Um, and every time Agnes kind of gets a bit eye-rolly and a bit... You know, I'm just a bit like, well, you know what? It's just what he needs. And all the way home, you get to choose your music and your music's really annoying as well. <laughs> so, yeah. Yes, but that's a really normal reaction for an eight-year-old to have. I mean, it's I can totally imagine my nine-year-old just being like, it's, it's not the same, but if we ever put on you know, like nursery rhymes for our, for our one-year-olds. They will be eye-rolling. eye-rolling, yes. like, oh, <laughs> do we have to listen to this again? So yeah. I don't blame her for having no, that No, exactly. And I, so I wouldn't want anyone to think that, that she's some kind of angel who doesn't get annoyed at her right. sibling. I mean, they have sibling fights. They're not verbal fights necessarily because, you know, Arthur can't um, express himself verbally very well. But, um, but they have fights just like any sibling. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Now, you mentioned your mum and your book, Tender, talks about your role as a carer. I mean, you talk beautifully in your book about your role as a carer. And, you know, I've, I've already mentioned to you, haven't I, a couple of times that I read the first chapter, just tears streaming down my face. Um, and that's definitely in part down to how you were talking about your experiences um, and you talk about your role as a carer, not just to Arthur, but also to your mum when you mm. were a teenager. Tell me a bit about, about that and that experience. Well, my mum, when I was about um, 11, started to become really unwell. She, um, it started with panic attacks and they were really severe, um, quite physical panic attacks. And it, we had moved to a farm just outside of Melbourne um, and the car was bringing on these panic attacks so obviously it was really difficult because you know we were quite physically isolated where we were um by the time so that's how it began by the time I was 13 it sort of um 
sort of moved into kind of full blown depression and a, and a breakdown. And from that point on, she was kind of going through these cycles of, of, of sort of being in bed for weeks and weeks on the end and becoming suicidal and then going off to a private hospital for a couple of weeks um, and then coming out and, you know, being much better again and being well and being really um, optimistic and then slowly descending again. Um, and this sort of cycle went on from about the time I was 13 until she died when I was 22. Um, and my parents were divorced by this point and my dad was living in America. So it was me and my brothers at home and and we were her main carers. Um, um, we were really lucky because my mum had private health insurance. And so we did, she did have, you know, medical support, um, which so many people don't have good medical support. But, um, but it was still sort of, you know, largely down to us. Um, and, you know, it wasn't until I was about 30 that I even heard the term young carer. I didn't know that it existed. I'd never really associated myself with that term at the time. Um, and it wasn't something I talked about with anyone particularly either. Um, I, I think at the time I didn't have any words to describe what was happening. Um, and it started off with small things like just, you know, my mum would burn the dinner because she would put it in and she would go back to bed and she would just lie there. Um, and so I would, you know, save the dinner or then I would just, or she would start preparing it and then leave it. So I would cook it. Uh, and then, you know, I would realize, oh, no washing's getting done or anything. Okay. I better do that. Um, and I was getting myself to and from school and kind of trying to remember to um, get my mum to sign anything that needed signing. And, um, and she would sort of, you know, commit to coming to some event at school and then not show up. And there were sort of countless times where she promised to be somewhere to pick me up in the car. And I would be sat there for a long time with nobody turning up and not knowing what to do. So it was pre-mobile days, obviously. Um, and then so there was that side of it, which is sort of taking over the household a little bit. Um, and then the other side, which was that, you know, how much she needed from me. So there would be, um, I would spend most of the evenings sitting by her bed and, um, you know, she would use me as her shoulder to cry on and tell me things that were way beyond my years. And, um, yeah, so it was a, it was a, it was a tricky time. It was a tricky time. Um, but it was also interesting because my mum was really self-aware and, really articulate and learnt a huge amount herself through that time and we really talked about it very openly and so even though outside of the house I didn't really talk about it with anyone inside the house we talked about it a lot um and one of the things we talked about was was how she had regretted not looking after herself better and and that's something that has always stayed with me and from the moment I knew I was going to be a mother I was very determined that I was going to be doing it the way I needed to do it um, the way I needed to do it to protect myself and to look after myself. And then when it became apparent that Arthur's needs were going to be really high, you know, forever, um, that was really scary. That was the things, one of the things that scared me the most was, you know, how, how was I going to look after myself whilst also looking after him? And that was one of the questions that I had when I wanted to write the book. I was like, you know, how do we look after ourselves when, when um, somebody else needs so much from us. Um, so what does self-care look like for you then now? Well, it's so personal and so different. So anything for me is not necessarily going to translate to anybody else. But for me, um, it has always been remaining working. 
and that's something before even I knew his what his needs were. Um, I think I did my first shoot when he was six weeks old, <laughs> and my um, his dad, my ex husband, came along and was looking after him on set, and I was stopping the breastfeeding. Um, for me, yeah. So working has been a really big thing for me, and working um, on my terms and as much as I want. And sometimes that's meant not very much. Like, and obviously when the kids were very small, I was working a lot less than I do now. Um, but you know. I think because of one of the things that um, that I really gained from what happened with my mum, I was very determined to, to do things the way I wanted to do them. And I really haven't felt a lot of guilt for working. And I know this is something that so many mums struggle with. Um, you know, I walk out that door um, and the nanny's there. And I, and even if the kids are a bit like, oh, mummy, 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 I walk out the door and I'm like, nope, I know this is what I need to do. And I don't feel guilty about it at That's all. That's so good. That's so good. I have a lot of other things that I, get, I feel guilty about as a parent, don't get me wrong. Um, but the time that I need to spend working is really, really important to me. Um, and partly that's for headspace. That's been really difficult about lockdown is not having that headspace and that time away from the domestic so it's partly that it's partly you know having control of my money as well um you know not just now that i'm a single parent but even before that just this idea that you know i wanted to be in control um of how much money i earned um and paying to my pension for instance um but also um you know even just commuting is lovely when i'm not shooting um i'm i have a desk space and it's about a 30 minute walk um through some back streets in a park and it's just like the loveliest bit of time in between home and work where I just get a little bit of time to myself and I get in that tops and tails my day just really, really nicely. So I do, I do really love to work. So that's one big, big thing for me. Um, and the other things really are, um, oh gosh, it's hard to say what's non-negotiable because obviously with lockdown, I've had to let go of almost everything that was yeah. non-negotiable. Things are um, just things have been upended, haven't they? They really have, and um, and what's been really interesting about a lot of people's reactions to it is a lot of people have realised, oh, I don't need this, I don't need that. Actually, we're fine without this. We're fine without that. Um, I've actually, I I've had the opposite. You know, I very deliberately built my life in a way um, that I needed to. I need a lot of support with this family. Um, usually, I have a nanny a few afternoons a week. I've got school for both of my children usually. Um, I do also have a cleaner and, um, and all of those things help me be a mother to a disabled child. And it, it has taken a really long time to get those things in place. It's none of them have been straightforward at all. Um, well, that's your support network, isn't it? I mean, I, I was, I was going to ask you about this in terms of you are a carer and, you know, who is caring for you like what is your support network and 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 it sounds like that is it yeah and it's school and the nanny are really huge hugely important to us but but beyond that as well my local friends have become such a lifeline for us um I made a lot of friends through my daughter starting school um and they're just really really fantastic and I don't know what anyone is talking about about London being a place that's not friendly and where people don't know each other because <laughs> I know so many people in my neighborhood I have such an incredible network now um, and it's just little things like, um, you know, my daughter, you know, she, she, it, it becomes challenging for us to do things like, you know, go to clubs and, and even going to birthday parties and things all the time. It can be really difficult sort of always carting my son around and things, um, because he, there's only so much he can kind of, um, 
so many errands you can go on and so many kind of uh, getting in the car and getting out of the car and all these transitions before it just becomes too difficult for him. And, you know, my friends are constantly on messages going, oh, are you going to that birthday party on Saturday? Why don't I just come and get Agnes for you and I'll drop her home or, or we'll go and we'll go somewhere and I'll have to leave very quickly with Arthur because he's not coping. And everyone will be like, don't worry, we'll drop her home, no problem. Um, so we really, um, we really are so lucky where we are. We have a really fantastic support network of, um, of friends who don't have disabled children. And then I do also have friends with autistic children as well. And they're a really important part of my support as well. And we don't meet up very often anymore because as our children have gotten older, it has been more challenging for us all to get together. But we do have a WhatsApp group and we are on it quite a bit. Um, and, you know, we do things like some of it's related to our autistic kids. It might be like, you know, we swap lawyers numbers um, because that's one of the joyful things about having a disabled child. You do often have to have a lawyer. Um, and, you know, we might get advice about um, disputing something or, um, or you know, making a complaint to a school or things like that. So we're really, it's a really fantastic group for things like that. But also just sometimes to just be able to have conversations with people without having to explain everything is just so important. And to also know that what you'll get is understanding and not pity. Um, I think, you know, it's one thing to talk to your close friends once they know your family really well. And of course, my close friends in my neighborhood don't sort of kind of do a whole kind of, oh, it's so sad thing. Um, but you do get that from people you don't know very well. And it's just another burden to carry around, quite frankly. I don't need anyone else's sadness. Like our life isn't sad. It's sometimes challenging, but it's definitely not sad. So I think a really important part of any carer's support network is going to have to be some other carers who are in a similar situation. And that doesn't have to be in person. It can be online. I've made some fantastic friends online who are an incredible support to me. Um, and I think there's sometimes this kind of division between in-life friends and online friends. Um, and it's kind of that argument is is quite ableist actually it's you know a lot of disabled people find it really difficult to get out and about and a lot of their friendships are conducted online and disabled people have really massively benefited from the online world quite hugely in fact probably more than anyone <laughs> um, because access has always been difficult for disabled people um, and access can also as a result be difficult for carers as well if the person they're supporting um, needs a lot of support and also is restricted in what they can do it's so important. I mean, it's been hugely, hugely important for me as a parent to an autistic child to understand what it's like to be an autistic person. And I can only understand that either from my son or from other autistic people. I can't learn that from a doctor or from a so-called professional or a teacher, um, unless they are, of course, autistic themselves and they might be able to have some insight. But I, I think it's it's hugely important that um, all of us understand the disabled experience, but particularly those of us who care for someone who's disabled, who support someone who's disabled. Um, I think we really have a, a duty to understand what that experience is like. Um, and um, yeah, I, I mean, you know, there's a lot of professionals out there who will tell you a lot about autism and a lot of autistic people will be like, I have no idea what they're talking about. It sounds like a load of crap. <laughs> um, we have lots of ideas about things. Um, I think pain is a really interesting one. Um, I've heard a lot of disabled people say that they've had doctors tell them, no, you can't be in that much pain because it says that there's not pain with this condition. 
And the person sitting there is going, well, I have that condition and I have a lot of pain. So how about you just listen to what I'm telling you? And this is this is the experience that a lot of disabled people have. And you, 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 you say in the book that disability and being a carer is so often hidden and not talked about. Why do you think that is? Why is it something that feels like it's sort of swept under the carpet a little bit? Well, I think I think there's lots of reasons. And um, I think one of the biggest ones is um, is that we are really scared of talking about disability. We're really scared. I think in the same way we're scared about talking about death because people don't want to believe it can happen to them. People don't understand what it's truly like to be disabled. They, I think every story that we have in our mainstream culture is that dis- disability is terrible and that it's the last thing in the world that you would want to happen to you or to somebody you love. Um, and these messages are really pervasive. They're everywhere and they're in our language and they're in, you know, like even just, you know, expressions like wheelchair bound. If you ever speak to a wheelchair user, they'd be like, no, no, I'm not bound to my wheelchair. My wheelchair gives me freedom. Um, and it's just even in just language and in stories and in mainstream films and and also just by omission as well, by just not having um, stories where a disabled person is having a happy, normal life. Um you know, so we've, we've come to fear disability so much and disabled people have been very, very marginalised for, I mean, I think probably the whole of human history. Um, you know, it, what's, for instance, just one example, which is very rarely talked about, is the fact that disabled people were murdered in the Second World War, along with Jewish people and along with gay people. Um, it's not really mentioned very much because at the time, actually, nobody cared. Nobody really cared that disabled people were being murdered. They were just like, oh... Well, just, you know, let's focus on another group of people. <laughs> um, so disabled people have really fought for, have had to fight really hard to have a voice and to have their stories out there. Um, I think what all of us can do is is read the work of disabled people and understand disabled stories, and then we'll be far less afraid of it. And it's not that it's not challenging to be disabled, it's really challenging. But a lot of those challenges are societal and structural and not all of them are to do with, you know, any kind of actual impairment or illness. Uh, finally, Penny, if someone's listening um, who has a friend with a disabled child, what can they do to help? I mean, you mentioned before that the last thing you want is that kind of, you know, feeling or the look of pity. But, you know, is there kind of practical help that they can be offering? Um, is it just a case of asking, what can I do? Well, I think, you know, my friends, I think one of the, the most helpful things that my friends do is, is just remind me that they're there for specific things. So I would say don't just generally offer help once and say, just tell me what you need. I'd say, you know, the things that I find the most helpful is um, when there is an event coming up at school and I know it's going to be a real juggle and I'm looking, oh, there's a disco and oh, how am I going to get there? And if I take Arthur there and I go back, it's going to be tricky to go back again because he's going to have a meltdown. And, um, you know, if there is an event happening that you know that your friend is going to struggle to get their child to and from, you know, just say, well, can I do one direction? Can I can I bring them home for you or or something like that? Or um, or even just things like, you know, when it comes to birthday parties and stuff, you know, just ask, like, do you want to arrive earlier? Do you want to come half an hour earlier? Would that be easier? Do you want to have um, do you need anything? Do you need anything particular for this party to make it work for your child? or things like that. I think um, if you are asking questions, maybe ask something a bit more specific 
rather than expecting them to tell you know what to tell you because I think sometimes when people ask us what we need in a very general way I'm not really sure what to say but if it's around something specific it's really fantastic and also I think keep asking you know because I think um so often you know and this is the same for 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 people who are disabled or chronically ill and can't get out very much um you know if 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 a friend of yours has is a carer and can't get out much um, do keep asking, you know, keep asking. And they also ask, oh, you know, actually, is a Saturday morning better to meet up rather than a Friday night? Or, you know, maybe just um, just check in and see and just keep, keep checking in with them. And they might have to keep saying no. Um, you know, sometimes when you're a carer, that it, it is really challenging to get out. And um, even if you want to, you might have to say no a lot of the time. So, yeah, I would say keep asking. Yeah, that's great advice. So, Tender is available to buy now. Um, and I urge everyone to order a copy because it's just, it's just brilliant to read. It's eye-opening, it's moving, it's, you know, I, I absolutely 100% recommend it. Um, but where can people find you, Penny, online if, um, if people want to follow you and, and hear more from you? Um, so I'm very easy to find, Penny Winsor, um, everywhere, really. So Instagram, Twitter and everything, um, I'm the only one with my name, so I'm easy to find. Penny, uh, thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy week to chat to me. It's been lovely to chat. Oh, it's been such a pleasure. Thank you so much. softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.